Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Today, the emphasis is on the special guests because we have a very different and special sort of episode. Moving into the election, there is always the quadrennial discussion of younger voters, what moves them, why are their voting percentages low, even dramatically lower than in comparable countries like uh, Germany or Canada, what could change that. In 2020, this discussion means engaging hopefully with a new generation of the 2020 electorate that has been dubbed Generation Z. There are about 24 million Americans born after 1996 who will have their first opportunity to cast a ballot in November. That is one in 10 eligible voters in the U.S. electorate. Their turn arrives and they stand poised to displace millennials, those born 1981 to 1996, in the public consciousness as the country's future. So we're really pleased to be sitting down today with four young voters who are leaders among their peers, but also phenomenally accomplished in their own rights in different fields, to ask them about the issues that matter most to them and hear their perspective on this pivotal election. I'm actually going to start by saying hi to everyone, but asking you to introduce yourself by just giving us your name, if you don't mind your age, where you grew up, and your area of strongest interest or passion. I'm Ziad Ahmed. I'm 21 years old. I'm from Princeton, New Jersey. I'm a current senior in college and the CEO and co-founder of Truth Consulting. And what I'm really passionate about is Generation Z and being a Generation Zer is social media and is politics and how we can hopefully shape policy to empower more lives. I'm Victor Shi. I'm 18 years old from Buffalo Grove, Illinois, which is like 30 minutes from Chicago. We'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA after this quarter. And then I'm also the co-host of a podcast with Jill Weinbanks, who Harry probably knows, part of the Talking Fed Sisters-in-Law. And then um, my strongest area is probably democracy reform. So things like the Electoral College, ranked choice voting, gerrymandering, etc. Hi, everyone. My name is Shia Bastida. I'm 18 years old. I'm uh, originally from Mexico. I grew up and was raised there. I moved to the U.S. five years ago, and I'm an incoming freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. And my strongest suit is climate activism, with a special emphasis on justice. I'm Bianca Vivian. I'm 23. I'll be 24 on Wednesday, so I'm actually a millennial. I'm exactly on the cusp, but I have way more millennial tendencies. I grew up between East Atlanta and East Oakland. I'm a opinion contributor to the New York Times and a professional media personality. And my strongest emphasis is on the revival of public intellectualism. I was going to frame a general question, which I will, but you said something intriguing, which is you, being 23 or 24, have way more millennial tendencies than Gen Z tendencies. So I guess you have that bifurcation in your mind. What do you mean exactly? Well... Just having gone to college on the cusp of being in the maybe my sophomore, junior year of college and being exactly with a bunch of millennials and a bunch of Gen Zers, the pop culture references, the fact that I grew up mostly without the Internet and social media, not really coming of age in the Trump era, having already come of age. I'm directly on that 1996 pest, but I'm very much a millennial. And my younger sister is also a Gen Zer. And I'm like, 
I did. We didn't grow up asking people's pronouns in the classroom and things right, like that. Right, right. So it's constantly, yeah. There's a generational gap there that I'm like, wow. All at the dinner table, I, I feel it so deeply. Gotcha. Let me just start with the whole premise of this episode, which might be similar to others you've been on. But what do you think about this? You know, the whole idea of a Gen Z. I think what Bianca just said might tend to substantiate it. I mean, obviously, no generation is all the same, but journalists do like to generalize about overall profiles and compare generations. Do you buy the basic idea or does it just seem like a contrivance to you? I'll say something that I think is really interesting because I did not grow in the Gen Z culture of the U.S. as most of you have. So, for example, in Mexico, where I grew up, my cousin, she's 19 years old and I just came back from Mexico and she told me when I was there that she was a millennial and I was like no you're not you're a Gen Zer and she said oh I just had like a midlife crisis because I thought I was a millennial my whole life right (laughs) and so in Mexico we just don't have this like structure of age as much as in the U.S. and I think it's really interesting here because there's really clear generational stereotypes when it comes to age I was in an interview one time and they told me, how does it feel to be called the generation snowflake? And I was like, people call us that? What? And that's more like European, you know, slang for generation C. It changes around the world how generation C is seen. And for me, we're not as uninformed as a lot of people deemed us to be. We're more engaged and we kind of read a lot and know more than people you know, expect us to. Yeah. Well, okay. And and I want to move into that. But from both what you and Bianca said, I think implicitly accepts the idea of a distinct Gen Z. Does anyone have anything else to offer on this idea that if you were born in 97 versus 92, it really does affect, you know, who you are and the way you think? Yeah, so I, I absolutely think there's a fundamental difference between Gen Z and millennials. And obviously, the, the line is always blurry. Someone born in 97 versus 95 is not a you know demonstrable difference between those two people. And that's just sort of like common sense. But certainly, we have to be able to talk about generational movements and generational ties if we're to articulately talk about you know how society is changing. And what is really fundamental about Gen Z is that millennials can in many ways be defined by being the first digital natives. Grew up in a world where things turned on and off. But Gen Z, we were considered the first social media natives. That means we didn't just grow up in a world where things turned on and off. We grew up in a world where we were instantaneously connected to every person that we ever met. And that completely changed how we show up in politics. We're dubbed the plurals, the first generation that thinks in terms of we. And the reason that is, is because when something happens politically, it's not somebody you know, who's thousands of miles away that I'll never hear from. We're seeing and hearing from that person in real time. When I go to the polls, I'm not just thinking about the people on my street. I'm thinking about the thousands of people I'm connected to online and how my vote impacts their reality. Mm. We think about the world through a much broader lens because we've been interconnected continuously and we think through intersectional lenses. We can't have meaningful, serious conversations around voter engagement without talking about racial discrimination, without talking about gender inequality, without talking about climate change. All of these issues are interconnected fundamentally. And so, yes, I think that Gen Z is distinct in terms of our habits, in terms of our mindset. Social media being a fluent language, a first language that we speak, means that we think of it like English. It's not a tool to share life updates. It is the very language that we speak Uh and has defined so much about our norms, has set Gen Z apart. And so as we talk about voter engagement or beyond, yes, Gen Z is distinct and worthy of conversation. All right. So let's move on to topic number one, which is the election and the future of the, the country. 
how are you going about it? I, I, my guess is that everybody here will be voting, but are you thinking hard about the choice or are you, just, are you taking the measure of the candidates kind of in a gestalt way? I think that being on that cusp is actually pretty important now because the funny thing is I was in my sophomore, junior year of college in 2016 and people kept saying this is the most important election of your lifetimes. And now this year, everyone's saying this is the most important election of your lifetimes. And you wonder how. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I mean, how many most important election of your lifetimes or lesser of two evil elections are you going to have? And I think that for me, when I think about social responsibility and like just reinstating any kind of stability, voting for Joe Biden has been a clear choice. But then how do you actually hold people and that administration, the Biden-Harris administration, to progressive policies if they know that everyone that's pretty much left at all, even if it's center, left of center, far left, is going to vote for them just out of literally creating a more stable uh, society and getting back to, you know, a level of decorum in the federal government and the executive branch. And it really is a how do you hold them accountable to universal health care and widespread progressive policies that this generation and Generation Z are really, really counting on, and we're always counting on. And so I feel like I I was talking to a Gen Zer the other day who told me that Joe Biden was kind of a slap in the face because there were so many progressive candidates, like more than had ever been presented. Even Pete Buttigieg, like Kamala Harris, obviously Bernie Sanders. Like these were people that they were so obviously more progressive and further left and represented the younger generation a lot better. And to put Joe Biden up, who is quite literally the face of like statesmanship in America for the last 30 odd years was hard for young people to say the least. Everyone agree with that? Yeah, I think in the short term, there is this reluctancy from the younger generation um, to support Joe Biden. I think there's a group on Instagram and kind of spread throughout the country called Settle for Biden. And it's like past Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg are more progressive supporters. They now form this group called Settle for Biden to support Biden, but um, not passionately. And I think for the short term, my generation, we feel like, you know, we have to get to the polls. We have to do this for our democracy. But then in the long term, kind of channeling what Bianca was saying about accountability, a lot of it is going to be once the Biden administration does come, hopefully that there is this accountability from our generation to hold him to account when it comes to things like climate change and other matters. Actually, in terms of Joe Biden being the nominee, obviously it's not what I would like to see. I was there in the climate debate when they had the CNN climate debate and all the candidates came and talked about their climate plans. And Joe Biden was the least progressive one on that stage. And he was actually quite nervous. And a few days ago, he actually said, I do not support the Green New Deal because he's catering to a more centrist audience rather than progressive audience. So I think here there's two things to think about. One, if we had gotten a progressive candidate, maybe the divide would be far more than it is right now, because right now there is a very big divide between Democrats and Republicans. But if we think about what the divide would be, if we had an even more progressive candidate, this could be a far more you know, tense election than it is right now, I think. And I want to echo about what Bianca said, because now we cannot hold Biden accountable to progressive policies as much as we would like to. So we have to look at other systems to actually get those policies in place, like selecting local candidates and supporting businesses that cater to our our perspectives. 
in the past, the way this has played out, it's not really in play now, was through third-party uh, candidates. Do you know anyone who's supporting a candidate other than Biden or Trump? Myself. Myself. In 2016, I wrote in Bernie Sanders uh -huh. because the way the, the brokenness of the Electoral College, I live in New York, and actually at the time, because I was doing absentee ballot in California, it was nearly a gesture of margins. It was literally just a because it doesn't matter. If I was in Ohio, if I was in Florida, if I was in Nevada, you know, people would have been knocking down my door with with pitchforks. But if you're in California and it's the Electoral College, like, you know that that state is going to go blue. You know that that state is going to choose the Democratic candidate. It effectively did not matter. And because the Electoral College is set up in such a way to favor smaller states and these battleground states, and really it comes down to them, then it was me being like, why vote and, and throw in a vote for somebody that I absolutely have no political alignment whatsoever and actually see as like the antithesis of a lot of my politics. So it was really just me being like, if it's if the margins say anything, if people look at the margins and say she barely won New York, she barely won California, then that was something that I could get behind and really not lose any sleep over. But it's not the most popular opinion. You know, the data suggests that almost 25% of Gen Z support the president. So you must come across them somewhere. It doesn't sound like anyone on this panel does. But the people who are your age, other young voters who are Trump supporters, to the extent you come across them, what are their arguments in favor of supporting the, the president? In my experience, like, in New York is not easy to encounter people who are Trump yeah. supporters, but the people who I found who are, they don't self-identify as, as Trump supporters, but they say their parents voted for Trump, is literally just economic purposes. Mm -hmm. Classmates whose parents own companies or have a lot of investments in the market, they say that tax cuts and all of those things would be beneficial for their family. So I think that's like one of the only things that I've seen personally. You know, I think that a lot of the problems that we're talking about regarding engaging young voters, regarding the candidates and the problems in our two-party system, and, you know, whether or not people support Trump, et cetera, boil down to, I think, fundamental flaws of our democracy. And I think that we cannot have robust conversation around how do we engage young people until we remove the barriers for engaging young people, right? The Electoral College, I think, is such an insidious system that needs to be fundamentally reconstructed, right? Voter Day should be a national, you know, holiday. We should have a federal automatic online voter registration process. Like, these systems are fundamental if we want to better include the voices of young people, because these polls that we're looking at are looking at registered voters. And that disproportionately will skew in certain ways because we have discriminatory voter ID laws. We have entire state legislators that have a vested interest and young people of color not voting and not being involved in the political process because they know their leanings. Young people go to college and oftentimes are shifting where they live when they turn 18 to ask young people to register to vote as they're navigating their biggest life transitional moment and figuring out this broken absentee ballot process all while figuring out their first semester of college is a ludicrous system. But to answer some of your other questions that you talked that you brought up quickly, what I want to say is I think Trump has support and I think lots of candidates, third party, whatever, or non-voters, right? I find who are not voting. I know people who are Trump supporters. I think what it boils down to is tremendous anger. I think a lot of young people are really, really angry. What we have seen is our lifetimes have been bookmarked by 9-11 and coronavirus. And in the midst, we have watched a financial crisis and our financial institutions take advantage of our families, right? We have watched 
or the United States being almost continuous warfare, we have watched almost every major political, military, or economic, or corporate entity, right, take advantage of communities, lie to us, pander, and beyond. There are many ways that anger can manifest. And anger can manifest in being like, I'm not going to engage with the system because it wasn't built for me and it doesn't exist to serve me. Anger can manifest in supporting really extreme candidates. Anger can manifest in all sorts of different ways. And we're not a monolith. But I think that Gen Z broadly is looking at a world that is deeply flawed and so many people are suffering and hurting and saying this status quo is not working. I'll piggyback and say that I agree in that voter apathy really is just voter suppression. And it's that even if you have a mild attitude towards voting. If you say, I don't really care, damned if you do, damned if you don't, that's an attitude that will keep you from voting because the process is so difficult. I can tell you right now as somebody that I voted on an absentee ballot in 2016, 2020, now I'm an established resident of New York, changing to a New York ballot has been so hard because I can't register online because I still have a California license and you need a New York ID. So now I'm going to have to pay $87 to get a New York ID in the middle of a pandemic in order to register literally just to vote in where I've lived for the last almost seven years. And so I'm going to now have to go in person during a pandemic to register to vote at my local election county board in person, that's the only way you can do it if you have an out-of-state ID, and that's going to have to be either at the very end of Manhattan, completely opposite of where I live, or at a local place that closes every single day at one o'clock. And that's just on a very personal level, the hurdles that come from somebody that's actually actively politically minded, well-educated, and in a higher socioeconomic class than the people that I grew up around now. And those people are completely apathetic towards the system in every way because they're poor, because they're black, because they feel disenfranchised and in so many other areas of their life and maligned by so many kinds of institutions besides the government that to get them to really go through that process and say, just go vote is really a slap in the face. And it's like apathy and suppression are so deeply linked that voter apathy, especially in the Obama era, because I was at the 2012 DNC heading up the youth desk for National Public Radio, and I was there and it was all about the youth vote and everybody was like, oh, the youth vote, the youth vote. And people kept using the word voter apathy to say they're not going to come out in the same numbers that they did. But, you know, I'll, I'll put it in the way that Winter Brienne, a young Gen Z voter activist, put it to me the other day. I was talking to her and she said, the, the, the narrative is always they don't show up. And it's not and it is, you know, it's not just young people. It's always in contention with people of color, black people, lower class people or working class people. They don't show up for a system that does not show up for them. And even when you have a candidate that is so clearly pro working class, pro universal health care, pro the people, the democratic machine has worked so tirelessly to malign that candidate and make sure no matter what, that he is not, not even just not the candidate, but not really even giving the entire country a chance to really vocalize that they wanted him and maligning all of the other progressive candidates and trying to get them to drop out of the race so that it could effectively come down to Biden and Bernie. And we saw all of that as something working. We didn't see it as a broken system. We saw it as That's a system was that was designed. working to keep people yeah. from voting. So this is super um, helpful. So I've heard, A, there's some really, pre- you know, 
got to get the subway to 178th and all you know it's a bit that so there's all these practical problems that when you're younger you don't have a car you live in a you know those kinds of things they're very practical i've heard zia talking about just anger at the system so much so a kind of smoldering feeling that makes you not want to vote and then to the extent this is a third option it's kind of like you feel the system is rigged so that your choice wouldn't be sort of on the ballot. I want to reframe a little bit. It's not that I don't think people want to vote. I think a lot of people, and I think most young people want to vote. The number of stories that I have of friends who have tried to vote, right, who've gone through the leaps and bounds that Bianca just yeah. said, and like they don't get their ballot. It doesn't come. It gets sent back. All of these things happen all of the time, and that just should not be the case. Okay, well, so this is the question. Is it arduous, or is it more of a alienation from the system? Younger people, in fact, don't vote. Do you have any thoughts about why numbers are low. You've, you, we've got a kind of a menu of options, it seems to me, from what Bianca and Ziad have said. So one of the things that I've found most interesting is this new kind of system called ranked choice voting. And it's basically where, you know, I think there's been so long this kind of constriction in politics where you have to choose between like the lesser of two evils. And this ranked choice voting system, you know, Andrew Yang has supported it. There have been many candidates who have started supporting this new system in which you have the option to vote for as many people as you want on the presidential ticket. Um, in the primary ticket, if you didn't like Joe Biden or if you didn't like Bernie Sanders, you could vote for someone else and just rank them in that order. And so that way your voice is heard in the election. I think so for so many reasons, there's this kind of underlying reason for why young people don't vote and kind of just channeling what Bianca and Ziad said about this anger, this frustration with the system, the fact that the system isn't representing us or that there's so much voter suppression occurring. I think ranked choice voting is a is a clever solution to kind of fix a lot of those problems and start to reform the system so that younger voices can be heard in the process by making it so that we can you know, cast our vote for more candidates that we like. I think a few jurisdictions have used them. or I wonder what the data is for the participation of younger people in ranked choice voting, but that is interesting. I'd like to move to some of the issues of the Supreme Court. Anyone have any thoughts about this whole very fast process to try to confirm Judge Barrett? So as I've mentioned, like, I did not grow up in the U.S., so I did not know anything about the, the systems of justice and all of that. But I did take constitutional law for three semesters in high school, and I think I learned a lot there. And one of the main things that I learned is how fragile the Supreme Court system is when it comes to very progressive issues, because it comes down to one person most of the time. And RBG, in this case, is one person who was on the progressive side who is not there anymore. And Justice Barrett would be not on the progressive side, we are assuming. So it would tilt the Supreme Court like on a, on a way that I don't think it has been tilted in a long time. When Kavanaugh was confirmed, you know, it was a whole thing because he was more on the conservative side of a lot of progressive issues that Gen Z cares about. But now that balance is not there. And so especially thinking about when Obama wanted to confirm somebody and they didn't let him, I'm wondering why are they... Why are people not speaking up on the conservative side when Trump is trying to confirm somebody 40, 30 days away from the election? There's, I don't, I forget who it was who actually said, uh, quote me on this. If, if Trump Lindsey Graham, is like Lindsey Graham. Yeah. the chair of the Judiciary Committee now. Yeah. Yes. He's like, if, if Trump wants to nominate somebody on election, you know, days, I'm not going to let him. And now he's saying, let's do it because you are president for four years, not three and a half. So the level of 
kind of trying to manipulate the system for me is like too much. And I think we should, there should be more support on that. Now the media cycle has completely forgotten about, but I think we should, you know, talk more about it. I think that for me, I, I'm completely unsurprised at what the right and Republicans and the GOP have done as far as trying to pack the court. And I think that what's really bothersome as somebody who is further left is watching Democrats use times like this to do a bunch of moral grandstanding and finger wagging to say, oh, but you're doing that and we weren't we weren't able to put in our candidate, you know, at the end of the election cycle. And instead of really looking at the fundamental division in this country as political warfare and strategy. Instead, oftentimes they use it as a time to make a moral standing. And it's really like Republicans don't care. I grew up in Stone Mountain, East Atlanta, and as soon as you cross the county line into like a Republican or all white county, you were in a completely different ideological universe and they knew it and we knew where we stood. And it's often these liberal havens that spend so much time being like, but that's not fair, but that's not right. As if that's really what's at stake here is the decorum or, you know, the logistics of how Supreme Court justices are put in. What's really going to happen is that likely if she does enter the Supreme Court, which she probably will, because these people are so unrelenting, is that that's going to be an era of very conservative judgments in the Supreme Court. But what we need to do as people that are progressive and further left and Democrats even, and more moderate people, is to see it as political warfare and make sure that the executive branch and the legislative branch are constantly checking and the fourth branch of media of government, the media, is consistently checking and actively working against whatever those court decisions are to really bring some progression where it is possible in this country. Instead of all the think pieces and moral grandstanding and pontification, it's it's very bothersome to me because it goes nowhere. Everybody wants to say they're hypocrites. As if Republicans care at all about being considered hypocrites by people that they don't fundamentally respect their humanity. Why would they care? So you're saying like, it is care? the law of the jungle. So we're in the jungle. Just ask, it is. Yeah. Well, it is at this point to really point to American governmental institutions. You know, they say that's not the way to do it. That's not right. As if people are not full on buying elections, using special interest groups to pour money into whatever their own cause is. It doesn't move the dial at all. And if people want to really roll up their sleeves and say, you're going to play dirty, when you really look at it, I mean, Henry Ford said, if you want to trust the American government, take a good look at the American Indian. It's always been this way. And if if we keep saying like, you know, the system could work, the system could work if we all just get along and we all just follow the rules when on things that are as ideologically divided as abortion or gay marriage. I mean, you're no longer just talking about legislative issues. You're talking about real, real deep belief systems. You're not going to get along. So you need to really pick a side and stay there. I don't know if you guys saw, but the very first day of the Supreme Court term, two of the conservative members called for the overruling of the big decision on same-sex marriage. So if there were five, that w- that could be really consequential. Any other thoughts about the Supreme Court? 
Yeah, I think in terms of the Supreme Court, Republicans have really done a good job, I think, at making the Supreme Court one of their fundamental issues. Case in point was the RNC and the DNC convention. So the RNC convention talked a lot about judges appointing these Republican judges to the Supreme Court. The DNC convention, one of the most striking moments, for me at least, was I think on the second or third night, there was a lot of talk about these policy issues, but then no mention of the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court could affect those issues. And I think that's a big part of the reason as to why Democrats um, don't really prioritize the Supreme Court. And I think, but with that passing of the notorious RBG, um, there was that shift in terms of our support for the Supreme Court, understanding the stakes if we do nominate Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. But I think Republicans have done a pretty good job at prioritizing the Supreme Court for a long time in politics. It's hard for me to even talk about the Supreme Court insofar as, you know, when RBG passed away, like I cried. You know, from where I'm sitting, I can't fathom the fact that we are looking at the possibility of a 7-2 bench, right? I think we're just talking about it as a 6-3. But Thomas and Breyer are quickly aging. And if Trump is to win re-election, we are guaranteeing that Justice Barrett makes it onto the bench, and we are opening up the possibility of a 7-2 split on the bench. And I think sometimes, perhaps, you know, as young people and people as uh, in general, we have short-term amnesia. Like, we forget that, like, marriage equality was passed, like, a few years ago. Like, this wasn't like something that we've always had that was always here. Like, it took one justice crossing over to Bianca's point that, like, you know, the Supreme Court is significant, but we also need to ensure, you know, we're checking them through the other institutions that we have, of course. However, we elect a president every four years. We elect Congress people every two years. This is a lifetime appointment. If Trump is to win re-election, we are looking at a supermajority in the Supreme Court of conservative authoritarian rule for the foreseeable future of my adult livelihood. And what that looks like is Roe versus Wade being overturned, marriage equality being in jeopardy, catastrophic decisions on climate and pipelines, catastrophic decisions on workers' rights and immigrant rights and homeowners' rights. We are looking at the degradation of any gains that we have, regardless of your political leaning, right? A 7-2 bench is bad for democracy. It means that we, as an American people, have no say for the next four decades regarding the most significant decisions. And there is little that a president or the legislative branch can do to check a Supreme Court decision once it is final. And that it's so like visceral to me how much this matters to me. And like I what I think, you know, when I'm talking to my peers about, you know, voting in this election, like I don't particularly care if people like Biden or not. Like, I think we need to show up to the polls on Supreme Court basis alone. Interesting aspect, it seems to me, about how you're putting it, Ziada. You, you spoke a few times about the soul of the country and the basic spirit of it. I wanted to switch gears a little and just ask about the Black Lives Matter movement. It felt that it galvanized so many people, but then maybe the air is leaking out of the tires now. One, was it galvanizing for you or were you already very much focused and, it, you know, in the killing of George Floyd just simply got other people involved? And second, do you feel that some moment has passed where a broader consensus really was solidly subscribing to the Black Lives Matters notions and but maybe it is kind of fading away or do you think it's a sort of permanent change in the country? When I was in college, 
It was the first wave of Black Lives Matter. And it actually created, I would say, not even a lot of political apathy, but a lot of exhaustion, because that was right before Trump was elected for the first time. And it was the killing of Michael Brown, my freshman year of college, that people were watching. And it it created a generation that was very tired because the country was so moderate at the time that there was a lot of stagnation because everybody that was comfortable wanted to remain comfortable on what I'll call, referencing the great James Baldwin, the race issue. And now people see at the forefront the reason why you get Trump. Sure, it's for economic purposes. I meant to comment on this earlier. Like A lot of it is that so much of America's political system, including the Electoral College, is fundamentally based on maintaining the legacy of slavery, race-based Black chattel slavery. And when you have a system like that, when you talk about pretty much everything that emanates from it, from the judicial branch to the executive branch to the legislative branch, voter suppression, gerrymandering, it always comes down to the race issue. And so even if Black Lives Matter, if it's having its moment and a resurgence and it's it's making its ways into the corporate sector and sports and entertainment and all levels of society, even if that movement fades, it's always for America And many, many Black intellectuals argued this in the 60s and 70s. It's always going to come down to the race issue. It's always. And so even if you don't have a Black Lives Matter, you're going to have something else the same way you had a civil rights movement. Then you had a Black Panther Party movement. You have an international Black liberation front because it's always going to come down to the soul of America, really, really comes down to the roots of America's history and the price that America paid in Black lives to come into existence as a capitalistic superpower that it is today. Barely is today, but remains today. So it doesn't matter if that movement fades, if it changes, if it transforms, if a new generation picks it up and they have different demands, but that problem is here to stay. And I think that what Gen Z is so great about is that they're not stagnating and they're not turning away from it in the way that they did even when I was in college. They're not embarrassed of it. And they're not afraid to say, I live in a racist system. And it's not just black people saying it anymore. I was telling my friend Matt, he's a white boy. He's a wealthy white boy. And I, I think that the very fundamental change is that people like him, liberal white people, are not so comfortable looking away from racism because they're not willing to have that kind of violence done in their name. And it used to be white liberals that were really the last bastion of white supremacy because even though they weren't actively participating in Klan meetings, they were willing to be okay with looking away from systemic racism and insidious institutional racism because they wanted the inheritance of their parents. And they're not so That's willing to do that anymore. That's a very provocative thesis, but I hear you. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I mean, they're, they're not so willing. A lot of them are not so willing anymore to say, Yep, I want the white picket fence. I want the inheritance of what these generations of violence have done. And if they don't want the inheritance and they're not willing to go to those links to protect it, then that entire system of white supremacy is in jeopardy. And I commend Gen Z for that tremendously. So you so see that's a change. You see a big change. It's a, I, I feel a change is what, is what it is. I feel a change. Okay. All right. Some of the things that Bianca said reminded me of an issue that I take to be almost a litmus test of Gen Z that, you know, I know that in particular, Xie is is involved in, but I I feel that the 
seriousness of purpose that attaches to climate change among young voters generally. I don't know if I would see a distinction between millennials and, and Gen Z. And let me just start here. You know, baby boomers, hippies, peace, love, the beginning of the environmental movement, all, you know, the whole earth manual, etc. But I, I take it your view would be that they totally blew it. They did nothing really to help. What sort of happened that you're now looking at inheriting such a big mess? And do you have hope about it? Yeah, so the climate crisis. And first of all, I would like to echo some of what Bianca said about Black Lives Matter, because I think that the way in which Gen Z has been able to kind of be an amplifier of the movement is by making everything that we do intersectional, all the types of activism that we do intersectional. And that crosses with, like, intersects with the climate movement. So the climate movement, in my view, had been seen as a white movement of straws, turtles, ice, you know, polar bears. (laughs) And now, more than ever, I'm seeing it being about people. You know, people are being targeted by pollution, The Bronx has 17% rates of asthma because it's a black and brown community. Indigenous people are targeted by pipelines and displaced by, you know, the fossil fuel industry. Targeted, you feel. Targeted is the the right word. Oh, 100%. Yeah. The 100%. I just read this whole book on, you know, toxic communities, environmental racism, industrial pollution, and residential mobility. 1,000%. (laughs) 1,000%. It talks about all the ways in which communities are displaced to just develop and then these communities are placed into areas that are less like healthy and are usually near landfills or are usually near polluted waterways and all of these things are systemic and all of these things are racist inherently and so now i'm seeing in the fight for climate justice the justice part be emphasized more than before and we still see politicians talk about climate action And we still see politicians talk about climate in a way of it's because there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. It's because, you know, these are things that do matter. But what matters more, in my view, about the climate movement is how it affects every single aspect of our lives from food security, immigrant security, biocultural diversity, all the biodiversity that is being lost is knowledge that is being lost by indigenous communities. And so... I think that we're moving forward as Gen Z in being able to articulate the intersectionalities of our activism. To piggyback on that is that what Ziad said earlier about Gen Z being so much more pluralistic, it really matters because in the 70s, the green peace movement was so much about individual action. It was so much about eating less meat and recycling. I mean, I grew up partially in Oakland and bordered Berkeley, which was, you know, the intellectual ghetto of the West that was all about you know, peace, 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 and and green. And and I grew up, everybody recycled and compost was a regular thing, but it was all about what the individual could do in order to better improve the planet. And really when you got social media and you got that pluralistic sort of idea of what people could do together and having a different language that was really about acting against corporations, then you really clicked into how the rest of the world creates change because only in America 
where the singular voice has always been emphasized. One man standing up against injustice, the superhero complex, was much different than other countries where the stratification between the government power and the power of the individual is so different because you had monarchs and you had dictatorships that people internationally have known in many other countries that you need a plurality in order to affect change. And that's what happened with climate change in America is that young people say, we can't do it alone and it's not going to come down to recycling or eating a burger or not eating a burger, but real anti-corporate acting and anti-special interest groups and, and real coming together for marches and movements and creating policy and legislation that speaks to a voice that could be as loud as a corporate dollar. So I feel like that is extremely important. Yes, climate justice is racial justice is, I mean, um, I spent my sophomore year of high school in Bangladesh in a sweatshop. I was in Dhaka and I saw firsthand at an H&M sweatshop right before the huge sweatshop collapse that happened that year, actually in 2012. And I, and I mean, we're a generation that's also just seen so much more clearly how our choices affect people in other countries in a way that before it was always very mysterious how you got something from China, how you got something that was made in Mexico, where your food was made. And because of really the camera and the accessibility of videography that we have been able to see firsthand how our choices of cheap fashion and food choices affect other places. And so we just care that much more because we're so visual. It becomes more visceral. I I, I think building off of, you know, the the first two points, I, I I want to echo how deeply I think these conversations are the same one. To Bianca's point, like, this country was founded upon racism. Like, the fabric of this country is racist. And so when we're talking about voter enfranchisement and we're talking about climate change, right, we have to understand that people not voting, like, climate realities disproportionately affecting communities of color was intentional, and these conversations are not separable. But if we're going to have meaningful conversation around change, we need all of these things to happen concurrently, because when I'm looking at the conversation right now, like the same kids who scoffed at me for being a social justice warrior in high school are now at Black Lives Matter protests with me. And like, never did I think that high school me would live to see the day that I see Mitt Romney march down Washington, D.C. saying Black Lives Matter. And so I've seen a groundswell of people acknowledge the racism, the climate injustice, the voter disenfranchisement, the systemic issues that are affecting our country and our world, right? Because to Bianca's point, so much of this American, you know, fantasy is that we disproportionately reap the benefits of the world and then put all the harm onto others. And especially that's true in the climate conversation, right? We pollute and then make other countries actually deal with that pollution. And I think absolutely. Every young generation has always said, just because things have been this way doesn't mean that they have to stay this way. And eventually you get jaded. But what I think is so different with Gen Z is we know we're not shouting in the dark if people are hearing us. Because it just takes one tweet to bring down Fire Festival. With that tool in our arsenal, we are triggering national, international conversations in real time around all of these issues and shifting discourses. I would also say that, yeah, it, it definitely is international for the simple fact that while we say that young people were always the source of groundswell for progressive change. Young people were also historically the source of the most nationalism and patriotism and the source of military were young people. And when you change that conversation to say, no, we know what American foreign policy does to other young people in other countries, you have so many young people in other countries who their political elite, those kids are 
educated in American universities than they do go over and say what's happening in it. Because a lot of America, the mystique of America and the pull of America in other places was being able to say that this country was so great and so equal and there was this American dream. And when they go back to their countries and say, no, there are people living without food and water just like here. There are people who are denied basic rights. That's a conversation that shifts worldwide and you get Black Lives Matter marches in London. Gen Z in general, I think we've seen it again with climate change, with Black Lives Matter, that um, we attack things head on. And I think that we are, we really are shameless in doing so. And I think that's part of the reason why we see so much change happening around these issues so fast. Um, we saw, you know, Greta Thunberg take to streets. We saw Black Lives Matter this summer. And I think these issues are changing so fast because of our efforts on social media, tackling these corporations, tackling these systemic issues. And I think that's why Gen Z and just the younger generation has made so much progress on these different issues echoing something Siad said before, which is social media and our global presence as youth is di very different than what it has been in past generations. And I heard an activist talked about social media as a country. Imagine social media is like a full country and the majority of people in that country are young people. So the fact that we got 7.6 million people to strike for climate on September 20th was because of that power that we have to mobilize across the board. The fact that youth organizations, climate and others, were able to mobilize through social media so quickly was because we were able to adapt in ways that older generations weren't. And in this same way, I think that a vote in the U.S. is a vote for the world just because the U.S. has such a big influence in international relations policy. And that's why we are getting people all around the world talking about the U.S. election. And that's why we're getting so many young people uh, talking about the U.S. election and influencing our own views on how we affect their own countries. So it's a conversation that we've never had before because we have platforms that we've never had before. That's a really fantastic image. Guys, it's been a fantastic conversation, and I really hope we can reconvene. On Talking Feds, we normally end with a question that everyone has to answer in five words or fewer. I'm going to take host prerogative and make it into two. Question one, what percentage of first-time voters will cast votes in November? And let me just amplify that a little. Basically, historically, and presidential elections, you know, there's good talk all the time. We really care, and it comes in at about 40%. And as I say, a fair bit lower, the gap in the U.S. between the youngest voters and the oldest voters is twice as large as in Canada, Germany, at least countries that I think have some of the same systemic issues that you've been talking about for the last uh, hour. But, but we're, our analysis is done and just the, the question remains. So what if 40% or so is where the millennials were, what percentage of first-time voters will cast votes in November, mail-in or, or any? And then second, who is your favorite musician and why? I hope that we break 50%. My favorite musician is probably Troy Sivan, Chance the Rapper, and or Sam Smith. 58%. All right. Avril Lavigne, because I haven't had time to update my music taste. <laughs> too too busy that. with fighting climate change. All right. We'll say 62%. I'm so happy to hear your guys' optimism. <laughs> favorite musician is Adele because she's just no auto-tune, just her voice, and pure authenticity. My projection is probably about 42% 
43% because I was there in 2012 on the ground. I was there in 2016, and I'm really here now. And my favorite musician, I would say Stevie Wonder, so that if I listen to this when I'm in my 50s, that it's <laughs> I still believe it. Because it was my favorite musician when I was in the fourth grade, and he's his music is so timeless. That if I said anything else, if I said Drake, I would be literally rolling my eyes in 20 years know. when my kids are listening to this. You know, Rolling Stone <laughs> just reissued its list of the 300 best albums of all time. But in the top 50 was like... Inner Visions, Talking Book, all Songs in the all Key of, of Life, yeah. all of them. So they're with That's, you. It's something else. I, and I know all of them. So right. I'd say, yeah, it, it stands. If you would have asked me in high school, I, I would have said the same thing. Guys, it's been really enjoyable and illuminating. Thanks so much. I hope you'll come back and we can talk some more. That does it for this episode of Talking Feds. Thank you very much to Victor... Ziad, Shie, and Bianca. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. You can check us out on the web talkingfeds.com where we have full episode transcripts and you can look to see our latest offerings on patreon where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters and these aren't outtakes they're simply ad-free episodes though we do have them there but really original one-on-one discussions with national experts just recently we've posted a long one-on-one interview with pennsylvania attorney general josh shapiro and with new york times reporter michael schmidt about his new book donald trump versus the united states also new ones on tiktok from sam vinegrad and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, some not previously known and really lovely stories from people who knew her well. So there's really a wealth of great stuff and you can just go look at it to see what's there and then decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McArdle. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.